You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Welcome to Unscripted with Alex, Amber. Pleasure to be here. So for the listeners, uh, Amber is, uh, well, you founded Tiny Sparks WA. We're going to get into what Tiny Sparks does and who they are, but can you just give us a quick little explanation of what your charity does? Sure. So um, Tiny Sparks is WA's premier charity for high-risk pregnancy and baby born sickle premature. Um, we support WA families at, from the time um, that they're identified as a high-risk pregnancy through the balance of their pregnancy, through their neonatal um, intensive care unit stay, and then beyond that in those early childhood years um, through advocacy and a developmental playgroup, uh, a peer support programs. And this all came about because of your own experience with your fourth birth, is that correct? That's right. Um, back in 2010, our son Addison was born at 25 weeks gestational age. Um, he weighed a tiny 865 grams. And at the time we identified there was a real gap um, in terms of what support was available for families. And so um, following our, our journey in the NICU, we met some incredible families and we worked together to start Tiny Sparks in 2013. And so with your pregnancy that was your fourth birth wasn't it yeah that's right um he was baby number four so my first three pregnancies had all gone very smoothly i had three full-term children uh they were you know natural births and our fourth pregnancy was going very smoothly as well there was no indication that there was any cause for concern until one morning my waters just broke and um we were in the living in the country at the time, so presented to the local hospital and jumped on a Royal Flying Doctor flight and found ourselves at King Eddie's later that day, um, where we stayed for four months. What were the early signs that you were, like, what was going on during your pregnancy? So, um, like I said, like, everything had been going really smoothly, um, and then it was just uh, spontaneous, waters broke um, quite early in the morning, and, you know, initially I did think, oh, it's baby number four, perhaps um, it's just like a, a bladder issue. You just wet yourself. And then, you know, I thought back to, you know, the advice we'd been given previously. Like, if you think your waters are broken, like pop a pad on, you know, see if there's any further sort of discharge over the next half an hour to an hour. And there definitely was. So... It was time to get checked out at the hospital where they were able to confirm yes my waters had broken and I wasn't actually in labor at that point but there was a lot of concern baby number three um, she had arrived in a little over an hour so quite a quick labor and so that hospital wasn't equipped to deal with a, a baby born um, at you know 24 25 weeks so and they did give me the medication they would normally give people who are in active labour to try and stop things from progressing while we were waiting for Royal Flying Doctor and getting to Perth. And then um, I was on bed rest, strict bed rest in the hospital for four days. And I didn't actually ever go into labour. Um, in the end, he was a footling breach. And because the amniotic sac was no longer there, he actually put his foot through my cervix in the middle of the night 
and I could feel it. His foot, he was obviously trying to get it back. It was like flapping around like a little fish out of water is how I can describe it. Um, so I hit that emergency bell on the wall and, yeah, within within minutes my room was full and I was whisked down to theatre and uh, it was a code blue. How fortunate are we to have healthcare that can, that can do that at the drop of a hat? And, yeah, we were really lucky. He took his first breath for himself and was quite quickly um, ventilated and taken off to the intensive care unit and, you know, our journey really started there. So where, where were you living before, like, when you had to fly out? Where were you flying from? So from Bunbury, uh, we were living in Australind, just north of Bunbury. Uh, so I drove myself into the Bunbury hospital to, to be checked out and, yeah, flown from Bunbury up to Perth. And they didn't think they would have enough time um, and obviously wouldn't be safe enough he was delivered on the side of the road to go by ambulance or, you know, for my husband to drive me himself. So that would have been a pretty quick flight, was it then? Yeah, it wasn't long, um, maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes. And so when you got there, so your waters had already broken, you were just still on bed rest for four days. Were they just monitoring, like, for infection or...? Yeah, that's right. So it was just on you know, observations in the hospital, um, strict bed rest, and, yeah, they were just... It was watching weight. Uh, they kind of said we expect either infection will set in and we'll have to take the baby for both of your sakes, or you know you'll go into spontaneous labour and you'll just deliver your, your baby. So that's that was really the two things that they were looking for. I'm not sure anybody planned for Tiny Foot to have its own idea. I was going to say that sounds so different to anything I've ever heard. What did that actually feel like? Like, did you know it was a foot, or did you just get like a, like a severe sort of sharp pain, or like what was it? Um, during that day, I had said when they come in to do the obs and they take my temperature and blood pressure and whatnot, I'd said a couple of times, do you know, like when you have a pap smear and you have that kind of weird ooh, kind of sensation when they do the little scraping, I was like, you know, I don't know, but maybe I'm feeling something that isn't there but I think I can feel something going on and they were like oh maybe it's just your mind playing tricks on you you know everything you're so hyper aware hyper vigilant um you haven't slept a lot because you're in hospital obviously you're like stressed out and worried and so we just kind of explained it away that way and I suspect that his foot was right at the top of my cervix then but yeah it was it was later on his whole foot went through my cervix initially I could just feel like a, a flapping kind of sensation I don't know how else to describe it and I was like that is so weird I wasn't really sure what it was and then I thought oh dear what if it's a prolapsed cord and that was actually what I thought that it could have been that the cord had prolapsed which is obviously you know quite a significant emergency and it turned out it was a foot not the cord did a midwife come in and like have an do an observation and be like, "Whoa, there's a foot"? Um, not immediately. So immediate when I first hit the bell and they, there was like four people um, arrived, I was like explained what I could feel, and they already had the bed like wheeling out of the room down the corridor, and it wasn't until I got to the holding bay at the theatre that someone did a speculum exam and went, "Ah, oh, yes, there is a foot there." Um, and, you know, we were, we were into theatre and, yeah, we arrived shortly after that. I mean, it, it's sort of funny saying it now, like, oh, there's a foot, but you must have been absolutely terrified at the time, were you? Or what was sort of going through your mind? All sorts of things. 
it was the middle of the night. My husband wasn't there. I wanted him there, but I didn't want him stressed out. So I made them call him and um, just ask him to come to the hospital, but tell him like not to rush because I was really worried he might drive from where he was staying and you know have an accident or something on the way. He had been there for the birth of our other children, so that was something that was important to me. Obviously, we didn't really know what condition um, our baby was going to arrive in. And so when the neonatologist came and said hello, he's like, hi, I'm the baby doctor. I'm going to be looking after your your baby. We didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. Um, I can remember having this like very assertive conversation with him, I guess, and saying, do not call my baby Baby Bates or Baby of Amber. My baby has a name. Please call my baby Addison when they arrive. It doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. They will have the same name. So just so, like, everybody needs to know this. This is important to me. And he was like, okay, um, which was, like, super lovely. Um, I'm not even sure how I managed to, you know, have that conversation in hindsight with all of the things swirling around in my brain. Was the baby going to be okay? Was I going to be okay? Was my husband going to make it in time? Hadn't had a cesarean before, so wasn't really sure how that was going to go. Um, and that doctor was, you know, amazing. He made sure before they whisked Addison out of the theatre and into the intensive care unit that they, they stopped by my head so that I could see him. Um, And I didn't realise at the time how important that moment was because this was like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning and I didn't actually get to visit Addison in the nursery until about 7.30, 8 o'clock that night. So I didn't realise I would be able to visit, but clearly that that doctor knew it would be quite some time before I saw him again. Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. Do you have a really vivid memory of seeing your baby at that time when he showed you your baby before whisking off? I I do, just this tiny, tiny, small little scrunched up face um, in amongst all these sort of blankets and plastic wrap and, yeah, it's quite Mm. surreal. Did they say anything to you about what to expect or what outcome could potentially be or what they were going to do with baby once... um, Uh, Addison was born do they say anything for you to be prepared not really um I had been asking for a few days if one of the doctors would come and see me on the ward and um our admission happened over a public holiday long weekend so I think many of the like the the hospital service was a bit short-staffed and no one was able to come and have that conversation with me but one of the amazing nurses that cared for me um there's an excellent library at King Eddie's and she was able to borrow a book uh, from the library and bring it up to me so I 
had read and looked through a bunch of pictures about what the NICU was going to be like and um, what some of the machines were and some of the biggest challenges the babies face. Yeah, whilst I hadn't talked to anybody about it, I guess I had I'd got some information. You definitely would need a lot of support going through something like that and having such a long time in NICU. Did they sort of explain? say or do they know why you had gone early? No, so they didn't have any ideas. Um, I didn't have any infections. Um, they were able to like look at the placenta and test their like, remaining amniotic fluid um, and I participated in a clinical trial which was looking at uh, prediction factors in um, mRNA and RNA sequencing and seeing if there was any sort of genetic reason why he might have been born early but I didn't I didn't have any um, feedback on any of those tests uh, that indicated that there was any reason that my waters just spontaneously broke early. Being in somewhere like NICU can you try and explain to us obviously the people have gone through it know what it's like but can you explain what are some of the challenges around being in NICU especially for a long period of time like 100 days? Yeah so in WA at least you don't get to stay like with your baby all the time so you're visiting the hospital every day Uh, if you've had a section then obviously you're not driving yourself there for the first six weeks you need that medical clearance before you're able to drive so you're relying on family friends or you know, your husband or partner to take you into the hospital each day. You know, things you don't think about is like expressing your breast milk, for example. You have to artificially bring in your milk supply. I was lucky I breastfed my other children. I knew how to express, but I can imagine for a first-time mum that would be really confronting and difficult process. So you're expressing milk just like you would feed a newborn baby, like every three hours you're attaching yourself up to a pump to take the liquid gold into hospital because you know that's going to give your baby the best start possible. Was it hard for the milk to come through and to get that kind of um, even the colostrum expressing because it was, you know, so early in the pregnancy? Yeah, so for me, because I had breastfed my other kids, my body like kicked into gear and was like, oh, I know what to do now. Um, even if my hormones weren't quite right yeah because I had done it before um and there's some really good information out there about like relactating and things like that for women who have successfully breastfeed who go on to feed you know adoptive children or surrogate children or grandchildren etc um but for women who haven't breastfed before yes it's very difficult to get their milk supply to come through often they end up taking medication to help Um, to help with that and for some women you know their hormone levels just aren't right and it's it's not successful and that's I imagine quite heartbreaking for them. And so during your experience did you do the is it called kangaroo? Kangaroo camp? Yeah. Yeah we did Um, it was 18 days before Addison was stable enough to be held for the first time Uh, and that was that was really difficult Um, and we did wonder would that day ever come yeah, he had been so sick during that time. But once uh, he got on top of the infections and, you know, he was more stable, then yes, we were able to do kangaroo care from then for most of the rest of our time in the hospital. Certainly not every day initially. Um, it takes a lot of energy for their little bodies to be moved and handled. 
and so he wasn't up for that every day but as much as we were able we did gosh 18 days without holding your baby it just sounds so hard were you able to like touch Addison at all yeah we were so the incubators have little portholes where you can pop your hands through um we were able to to touch him there's definitely like guidelines they give you about not overstimulating them so that you're touching them in a way that is supportive of their like neurological development I guess but yeah that was certainly encouraged and promoted. And so what were some of the other challenges then because obviously I, I would imagine you've got three children at home your home is in Bunbury so you're now spending time between Bunbury and Perth and you and your husband aren't able to stay in the hospital. Like, how do you juggle all of that? Uh, it was a real team effort. Uh, we were really fortunate to have strong family support. Initially, the children and my husband went back to Bunbury and we had different members of the family go down and stay with them and support them at home. And I stayed in the city to be close to the baby and they came on weekends. And then Russell was able to take some time from work to stay in the city like with us. And as we, I guess that was during the middle period of our stay, and then as we worked towards the end of our stay and Addison was starting to do some non-nutritive um, breastfeeds and were working towards breastfeeding, I moved into the rural mother's accommodation uh, called Agnes Walsh House that's on site at King Eddie's. And again, the community and my husband took time from work and they sort of all cared for the the other kids and my husband while I spent most of my time at the hospital. Uh, I would just imagine this feeling that you know mums get that mum guilt kind of thing but having your time pulled between your all your children did you find that challenging? Oh for sure the only way I guess that I was able to rationalize it at the time was like um know the kids were like six five and three and I was like you know they've had the benefit of all of those years of love and care and attention from like both my husband and myself and this tiny little baby hasn't had that opportunity yet they're not even sure who I am yet so the only way that I could really rationalize it was to sort of look at it that way that he needed to feel that same love and care and attention that they'd had the benefit of years of already absolutely heartbreaking yeah at the time when you were there in NICU and going through all of this and being pulled um you know between Bunbury and Perth and was there much support around at that time before because obviously Tiny Sparks wasn't around because you founded that so what sort of support was available honestly nothing really uh, I didn't know anyone in my friend, immediate friend or family network who had had um, a NICU experience. So I couldn't draw on any of their wisdom or words of advice. I managed to find a small online forum uh, based on the East Coast and I was able to join the forum and connect with some of the people there um, who offered you know, their support and their advice. But what I came to learn through that was actually in WA with only having that one tertiary women's hospital and, and NICU at King Eddie's um, and the supportive NICU at the time, Princess Margaret Hospital, but now PCH, um, where they mainly focus on like sort of surgical requirements. 
we actually do things a little bit differently here. So the, the advice and, and support was kind of, you know, only general in nature um, <laughs> because what I was experiencing wasn't directly comparative to what people on the East Coast in um, some of their hospitals had been experiencing. So what do you mean exactly? Like any specifics? Um, I guess because the units are smaller, you know, there's a bit more of a sense of community. Uh, some of their doctors manage different conditions in slightly different ways to us here. We have a, a very large sort of nursery at King Eddie's. They can have up to 100 babies there at any one point in time. Um, and as a result, we actually pioneer a lot of new techniques and best practice sort of treatments and protocols. And so whilst we had subscribed to some studies and things here, they weren't offered at those smaller in the smaller nurseries and things were just done slightly differently in those other hospitals on the East Coast. So, yeah, that came with its own own challenges. And then in terms of sort of, you know, there was no established organisation here doing doing any kind of peer support or, you know, care packages or playgroups or connection. Yeah, it was quite a lonely time. Were there milestones or sort of progressive things they were trying to say along the way, like, you know, this is how he's going or, um, you know, at what point did you feel like things were going, to, you you know, you are going to get through it? Probably didn't feel like everything was going to be okay until he was about three. Yeah, because they were very cautious, I think. Um, there was sort of never a, you know, they were like, oh, well, when we started talking about, when we think he might come home. It's like, oh, well, we like to aim for the due date. But, you know, just like regular babies, sometimes they go overdue and, you know, it's like really only a guideline and we can't say for sure. Yeah, it was hard to know. Like there was definitely milestones within the NICU experience, like um, hitting like the one kilo mark was huge, coming off the ventilator and moving on to CPAP was you know, incredible getting off CPAP and onto low-flow oxygen was a huge hurdle. We went backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and did this one step forward, two steps back thing for what felt like a really, really long time. And then just one day um, they were like, oh, we'll try him off today and, and off he went, uh, which was, you know, he was making his own little sprint for the door, which was quite incredible after the backwards and forwards nature of the previous week, you know, getting established with suck feeds as opposed to tube feeds, uh, that took a long time for him to have the energy to get through sucking full feeds and then, you know, he would have a suck feed, one feed and a tube feed, the next feed. But, yeah, working towards full suck feeds before we got home. Yeah, like yeah. they're cautious to say what they think the long-term outcome is going to be because... So they can give you the statistics around it, but they don't know what it will be like for your own unique set of circumstances. And a lot of that depends on did your child have a brain bleed? Did they have a particular type of infection? How long were they ventilated for? You know, things like that. And so um, was Addison classified as immune compromised for the first sort of three years of life then? Um, yes and no. But he was on oxygen at home and his lungs had been really seriously impacted by being born preterm and then the length of time that he was on the ventilator. So he had um, what they call chronic lung disease and he was, you know, they are more susceptible to illness. Um, 
But our biggest issue was going to be if he did become unwell, how his lungs would handle that. Uh, so there was quite a lot of warning around you staying away from crowded public places, not going to birthday parties, you know, making sure your visitors are well, you know, and then like seeking help early if they do become sick. So having a great GP who's trustworthy, having really good action plans about what medications you're going to give, um, knowing when you need the chest x-ray and when to be admitted to hospital. We did have quite a few admissions in those first couple of years. Uh, so we didn't avoid all the illness in spite of doing all of the things. Oh, gosh, that would be impossible to minimise illness. I mean, children get so sick in those first few years of life anyway. So, And then to have a weakened immune system and the chronic lung condition is just, uh, yeah, I can imagine now. <laughs> I understand a little bit better why you say you, you didn't really feel like you were out of it until reaching that three-year mark. How was your recovery? So after having the C-section and then um, this toll of, you know, sleepless nights, I'm sure, and worry and constant stress. I found those first few weeks after having a C-section, like almost unbearable. Um, I really didn't want to take the pain medication because I knew it was going to transfer in my breast milk to my already like sick, tiny baby. And I had known some people who had become quite dependent on pain medication following major surgery. And so I was acutely aware of, like, not that I felt at risk of that, but I didn't want it to become a crutch. So I probably did myself quite a disservice. <laughs> I remember saying to someone, I can't believe people opt into this. It's, it's awful, <laughs> the amount of pain that I was in. You know, if it's medically necessary, I, I totally get it. But yeah. It was, so I found it really challenging. You know, my three-year-old was so used to being sort of picked up and, you know, cuddled and I really had to encourage her to like sit next to me and cuddle on the side. And so that dynamic changed a bit. Um, I'd always been a very self-reliant person. So things like even hanging the washing or standing for long periods, yeah, it took its toll in those first few weeks. Emotionally, all over the place. I mean, when you have a baby anyway, all the hormones that run through your system, like they make you crazy. Um, <laughs> they make, you know, you can cry literally over anything. All of that still happened. Yeah, and then just like the worry and someone else is caring for your baby all the time. You don't know who those people are like normally you would choose oh I'm gonna leave my baby with a grandparent or you know some other relative that you know someone you trust and you trust these people because they're health professionals but you don't you don't know them that's true yeah you're putting a lot of trust into somebody that you don't know and like almost all of them were amazing and you know I could ring up at any point in time and I did often call you know in the night when I was up expressing to check in and see how he was going with the night staff. They were very supportive and, you know, good communication. Obviously, they do want what's best for you and your baby as well. They want to see those positive outcomes. So, yeah, it was, it was a real roller coaster. This is, might sound like a, a funny question potentially. How did you go around eating? Like, did you actually manage to still eat nutritiously, like, 
obviously after having a baby to try and get the best recovery possible for yourself and making sure that you're getting enough milk and all of those things. You want to eat really good, wholesome, nutritious foods. But in your circumstance, like, did you find that was even possible? Initially, yes, because I went and stayed with family. And so, um, and I'd always had like a pretty reasonable, reasonably healthy diet leading up to his birth. So having sort of family support initially helped. When I moved into the hospital to be there for him more, I didn't have any access to any cooking facilities. Um, So I was on hospital food. And, you know, if you were in the nursery when the dinner came, you missed the dinner. Oh, okay. So, like, I had a stockpile of, like, fruit and crackers and other other things to snack on. Obviously, I tried not to miss the meals, but when you're cuddling with your baby and the choice is, like, eating or cuddling, you're doing the cuddling. Like, <laughs> you've waited for those cuddles. So, yeah, every time. And so out of all of this, the idea to start tiny start tiny sparks <laughs> uh, generated, I suppose. Like, what was the initial thought there, and um, how long after having Addison did you start um, diving into doing that? Uh, he was probably almost two, so around twenty twelve, I guess. We had maintained this friendships that we had formed with like two other families, and we had continued to like watch our children's challenges and successes over those first couple of years and I guess we were all at a place where those initial hurdles we we jumped over those initial hurdles and our kids were a little bit more resilient now they were a little bit bigger and we were really driven to you know what can we do how can we help and it was then that we started exploring what um opportunities were already out there and what we might be able to do and through sort of that exploration we really found you know as I had experienced there wasn't there was still nothing in that space it took us almost a year to get all of the approvals and licensing requirements and then we were able to start Tiny Sparks in November of 2013. I suppose you think oh I just start a charity it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of work involved did you know sort of pretty clearly what you wanted to do with Tiny Sparks? Initially, we were really focused on that peer support element. Um, and then over time and listening to other people's experiences, we were able to bring in the sort of care package programs. We have one for NICU families and we have one for bed rest. So for women like me who end up in the hospital in an emergency and have just come in the clothes that they're wearing, you know, we have this bag that gives them all of their toiletries and information on what other supports are available and how they can uh, connect with us. Then during the NICU, you know, that peer support is so crucial. Like I was sort of saying to you, you know, not everyone has a friend or family member they can call on who's been through this experience and they can say, what was it like for you? How did you get through this? What helped you with your, you know, expressing journey? Or what was the outcome when your child had this brain bleed or this particular bug? And so having that that peer support network, almost always when people are asking those questions, someone has been through that and been through it quite recently and can share their own, this is what worked for me or this is what happened for me. And then, you know, these, these little tiny babies, they're at developmental risk. You know, they, they leave the hospital and they're sent on their way and they do have, like, follow-up and whatnot, but a lot of them go on to need 
know, physiotherapy and occupational therapy, speech therapy. So through developing our playgroup, we were able to give people access to those services in a timely way. As we all know, you know, there's wait lists for access to allied health and medical services all, all over the state. Um, and for these children, that just-in-time help and advice and even if it's reassurance for the parents that their child is tracking well, is so valuable. And again, promoting that sense of community by coming along to play group. So how old is Tiny Sparks now then? You're just reaching 10 years, is that right? We turned nine this year, but yeah, like officially nine. So what are you going to do for the big 10? <laughs> <laughs> well, on World Prematurity Day, um, we like to turn perf purple. Uh, there's yeah. a wave of light that sweeps all, all over the globe and it shines a light on the critical issue of preterm birth. So um, no giveaways just yet, but watch this space for November 2023. Awesome. <laughs> Go see the, um, the city painted purple. <laughs> and so if there's other people that want to um, help support uh, Tiny Sparks, what can they do? Um, they can make a donation online. It's... Um, you know, we, we are registered for deductible gift receiving, so it is a tax-deductible tax donation. They can get involved by volunteering their time. Uh, we have a crafty creator group who do some knitting and sewing projects for us you can get involved with. And from time to time, we run a busy bee so they can come along and give, you know, two or three hours of their time and work with us to pack care packs or other items we're giving out in the community for special occasions. Fantastic. And Amber, I just want to jump back a second. Um, just then you said about having the support when you're waiting in hospital on bed rest. When you were in that position, what, what was going through your mind? You had four days on bed rest. Were you thinking that you were going to be able to hold baby in or was it just like hold baby in for as long as possible? Or um, So I pretty much asked as soon as I had my first ward round, like, what are the statistics? tell me how it is and they were like okay well statistically you've got a week uh in a we normally see infection set in the baby goes into distress you'll go into spontaneous labor within seven days and then you know they were quite quick to say but there's always an anomaly there's a lady down the hall who's been here for six weeks now um so you know they were like they were frank and honest but also gave me some hope. So, you know, I really wanted to be that lady down the hall who crossed her legs for six weeks. Um, obviously, in my case, that wasn't to be. Addison had other ideas with the foot. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. I guess initially, like, was I going to be okay? Was the baby going to make it? What were the big challenges we were going to face, which, of course, no one could really tell us? How was the rest of my family going to cope and function while I wasn't, while I wasn't there? Yeah, it was, it was, like, hard to plan much more than a few hours. And being in hospital, you don't sleep very well. There's always something happening. And um, so because you're on bed rest, you're obviously not meant to be moving. What did you do with your time? Did you just sort of watch TV or...? What were you doing? Um, I had quite a few visitors because I think, I suspect had it been a really long time that I was in hospital, you know, those visitors would have dwindled. But because it was so new and everybody was so concerned, yes, like I had my mum, 
come and visit. My husband and children visited. Uh, my best friend got on a plane in Canberra and came to Perth and was like, what can I do for you? <laughs> she bought me new pyjamas and things, which was so lovely. So, yeah, I had quite a few visitors during the day, which helped to pass the time. Otherwise, you know, watching television, reading books, uh, it was hard to concentrate on anything really because in the back of your mind you're worried the, the whole time. And for somebody who it sounds like is a very busy person, you would be anyway, you had three kids, <laughs> so imagine you're always running around doing something. Did you find that challenging to have to stop and sit for, for that time? Yes, challenging to push the bell and ask for like, can I have a new jug of water? <laughs> you know, I need to go to the bathroom now. Yeah, you had literally had to ask for everything. And when you're, you know, you normally just rely on yourself to do all of that. It is it's hard. It's a real shift. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story and explaining to us about Tiny Sparks and for creating this charity. It's absolutely amazing. It's definitely no small feat and to keep it going for so long and um, can't wait to see what happens next year. Uh, if anybody wants to find you or Tiny Sparks, where's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So we are at Tiny Sparks WA across um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And we do have a website as well, www.tinysparkswa.org.au, and that has our email address and other contact methods there too. Thank you. We'll put all of that into the show notes, as we always do for um, our listeners, so they can find you easily. And thank you again for your time. Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Alex. Thanks for inviting me along. And thanks for putting up with our, our new little studio setting here in the bedroom in our loft with my son on my lap. It's a different kind of recording today. Oh, being a mum, I totally get it. Just got to make things work. Just fit it all in. Oh, man, you should see some of the meetings that I go to, like in the back of the car, waiting for someone at sports practice or like, I'm just sitting under a tree here for five minutes. <laughs> mum yeah. life. Oh, thank you very much, Amber. Yeah, no Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co.